Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the podcast Flavors Unknown. I am your host, Emmanuel Laroche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and here in the US. And every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders around the US to discover their secrets behind the scenes, share with you new exciting locations, and find out which new flavors and ingredients they are experimenting with. If you are a first-time listener, welcome to the show. Last week, my guests were the chef's couple Sayat and Laura Azilmaz from Noosh, the new Eastern Mediterranean restaurant in San Francisco. You can find the show notes of this episode and all previous episodes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. If you are on Facebook or Instagram, you can follow us at Flavors Unknown. Be sure to listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or other phone podcast apps. Please subscribe to the show as you do not want to miss future great episodes that are coming soon. Today, Flavors Unknown is featuring a special episode focusing on bourbon. My guest is Flavien Desoblin, who owns two bars in Manhattan, the famous Brandy Library in Tribeca and Cooper and Oak on the Lower East Side. Both of them have one of the most comprehensive collection of brandies and whiskey in the world. He is a true expert in distilled spirits. This is a rather long episode, I have to alert you, compared to the other ones that I had before, as Flavien shares rich and excellent content, and we are both individuals really passionate about bourbon. Hi, uh, Flavien, how are you? Well, uh, so far, so good. So far, so good. So welcome to uh, Flavors Unknown. I am really, I have to say, excited, super excited to have you, you know, on the show. I have to say for two main reasons. The first one, you know, we know a little bit each other and I really consider you to be like a true expert, you know, in the spirit uh, world. And the second reason is because the Brandy Library is, I have to say, my favorite place in Manhattan to relax, you know, when discovering incredible bourbon and, of course, other, you know, spirits. So each time, you know, I enter the place, I forgot everything about everything else. You know, it's, it's really a special place to me. Well, perfect. Thank you very much. I'm glad you can leave all, all your, your headaches and, and, and everything else behind when you walk in. That's, uh, that's the whole point. So I, I like to hear this. And thank you so much for inviting me to be over. That's really, really nice. Uh, you're welcome. It's all about flavors in our, in our lives. It's true. Yeah. And true. there's so much that we don't understand that... Uh-huh. I like the investigation part of it. So, thank okay. You. So, Flavia, so you are the owner, you know, of uh, this great space, and you have created it. What was your inspiration, you know, behind the creation of the Brandy Library? I have a background of of wine and spirits, uh, both business and 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 making it. I I learned how to make wine. I learned about 
tasting properly wine and learning about wine and vinification and vineyard management and all this. But besides a natural passion because of my background, my upbringing with wine growers, being friends of the family and visiting the, the cellars that my dad loved so much and enjoying the great dishes that my mom used to cook, naturally, I was drawn to wine and spirits, right, in general. But I, there's something a little uh, more simple than, than that. And it's, I came to the U.S. in uh, 2000. And yeah, because I, you, are, you are born in Burgundy, France, correct? I am a Burgundian, yes, indeed. And, uh, and it's, I, I actually feel sorry on a regular basis that we don't make amazing spirits. There are some great Mar de Bourgogne, but uh, so far, there isn't much whiskey or other very fine spirits being made in Burgundy. It's the land of, of wine and great wines. And so I enjoy it very much. But for spirits, I saw right away in New York that customers or patrons in the bars and restaurants I worked at could drink quite a bit of them and always paying attention, meaning not uh, drinking it and, and being drunk. They could still make sense. Um, they could consume quite a bit, but this American mind of curiosity, the investigation of the fancy drinks, it, it seems to be a second nature in Yorkers, at least I know about New York. And I figured, well, I believe that wine bars have been covered and they're doing pretty well. So uh, I love spirits. Why don't I specialize in spirits and I can bring a knowledgeable service in the bar that I would create that would be about fine spirits. So that was, that was it. I was extremely lucky to meet the right people who could help me find the money to open the bar. And I, I'm, I'm one of those very few people who can say that their dream come, came true. And that was it. And in, and in 2003, I signed the lease. And in 2004, in just about exactly 15 years ago, I could open Brandy Library after quite a few months of construction, of building, and, and, and all of this. So I'm a happy individual 15 years later. So I have a, a listener from um, you know the podcast that uh, knew that um, I will have an interview with you that was scheduled so his name is michael and he's he wants you know to ask you the following question is what is the mission of the brandy library i mean the very core mission is to to give the letters of character back to spirits unfortunately to too many people out there um, strong alcohol is just hard liquor instead of being a liquid that is packed with flavors that is complex and rich right we tend to think of fancy wines as very much um, conveying the message of pleasure and intellectual moments or nostalgia or reflection. And spirits are normally, at least by most, not understood as, as being too noble. So the very sole purpose of Brandy Library is to showing our customers, whoever wants to listen, that this dedicated spirit, whether it is cognac or bourbon or tequila, is made by real people, first of all, with an amazing tradition, usually a great deal of heritage. And there is so much care into the process, into the making of the spirits, and where, wherever they're made from, 
that they definitely deserve attention. And then, should we pay that a little bit of attention, we discover a whole world of flavors. That was it. That was really the very first purpose of Brand Library. And uh, is it because it's been 15 years? Or, or, or is it because, well, the world has changed? And um, generally speaking, people pay a lot more attention to fine spirits, whether they come from Mexico or, or South Africa, from Japan or Ireland. I believe that finally the world is understanding that it's not just hard liquor, but a lot more a great product made by people for people and that can be so rich that they are truly life enhancers. Let's talk about bourbon. You know that I, I, I really, you know, love, <laughs> you know, that, that spirit. Let's focus on it for a while because, uh, you know, I, with your expertise, we can talk about any of the spirits, but I don't have any, uh, enough hours <laughs> you know, to, to cover it. So maybe I have to have you uh, another time to talk, um, you know, about gin or, or uh, whiskey or, um, you know, um, scotch, I would say, and so on. So, so I believe I know the answer of this question because uh, that I'm going to ask you as I, you know, I attended um, several of your classes, you know, at the Brandy Library. So how does the name bourbon come from? Nobody knows for sure. We can, we can just venture and say, well, no matter what, there's a French influence in that. Whether it was uh, named bourbon and there was a specific type of whiskey, it was just a, a better whiskey by the Tascan brothers. And commercially speaking, they had to differentiate. And commercially speaking, they had to differentiate themselves. They thought that they were selling a better product, a whiskey that was not as harsh as the um, otherwise rye-based whiskeys that everybody else was selling. And was it because there was corn as the base of it or because they were actually used to age their bourbon for a smoother taste, a rounder taste, so to speak, because of their French origins? Or whether it originated from Bourbon County uh, over what was one part of the newly created uh, state of Kentucky, and there was that, that part of Virginia was the Kentucky district of Virginia. There was this distribution carving of this Kentucky district in 1780 with Fayette County. Uh, later on in 1785, you find yourself with that new city port of Maysville that happens to become very quickly a hub for goods uh, going down south. You know, by then everything is in barrels, whether uh, you're talking about nails or smoked fish, molasses, and of course, whiskey. So whiskey is, is made around that Maysville area. And you'll be in Kentucky in 1792, uh, the state. But right now you've got that whiskey that happens to be on those flatboats and later on the steamboats and going down and finding those, those cities of down south. Uh, and imagine that this little bit of a travel with um, swinging temperatures and levels of humidity force the whiskey in and out of the bale. You've got this interaction of the whiskey and the wood, and then therefore when the whiskey gets down there, it does find um, an appreciation amongst the fine palates. And all of a sudden, whereas everybody else was used to rye whiskey, well, now they're getting that whiskey coming from 
and stamped with the origin of its creation, or at least its shipping, with Bourbon County. But old Bourbon whiskey. Later on, when it uh, when Maysville is not part of that Bourbon area anymore, it's, uh, it doesn't matter. It, it's that old style, old Bourbon. And therefore, those bales being stamped with old Bourbon are this sign of, um, of, a, of a different quality of whiskey. Because it's corn as the base, it's not as spicy. And because there is some sort of a maturation, unwilling maturation, I guess, it becomes rounder. So the wood has been extracted, its sugars and, of course, a bit of color. And definitely it does resonate with the French population down there. So it becomes something a bit fancy and it's easier drinking. Let's stay on the bourbon, you know, for, for a bit. So definition, straight bourbon needs to be 51% of corn, contains, you know, other cereal like uh, rye, malted barley, sometimes wheat. There's been aged like two years, correct, in chart and new oak barrels. Doesn't have to be from Kentucky, correct? It doesn't have to be from Kentucky. It, it's one of those misconceptions. It so happens that history has called Kentucky its home when uh, making bourbon, really, because of the natural growing of corn there um, and, and because it became a hub for distribution of different parts of the United States. But um, straight has to be two-year-old and if it's under four, you've got to stipulate this on the label, right? So most big bourbons are just four years and one day when you're not going to find those bourbons for a very high price and there's no age statement whatsoever. If it says straight bourbon, then you can tell it's four years in one day. Uh, a few brands will find their sweet spot between, say, um, five and seven. Maker's Mark happens to be right there, and there's no age statement at, at for Maker's Mark, but we know it's right there, six, seven, eight years of age. For other brands, eight years is just very old, and now we've got the trend of putting a much higher age statement on, on bourbons. It, it sells, and bourbon is a collectible. But what I'm trying to say here is that most bourbons, uh, a good 90% of the bourbon that is sold throughout the world is just about four years and one day. And yes, of course, most of it comes from Kentucky. It's well over 90%. I believe we're at 93 or 94% bourbon being made in Kentucky. Is it a special reason why Kentucky is ideal you know, for bourbon whiskey production? The bourbon producers have always touted the uh, very benefits of that limestone filtered water, and that happens to be right for fermentations. Is it that simple? I'm not sure. Uh, I think the weather being not extreme, but offering great deals of temperature variations and humidity levels does offer a speed aging of sorts, if you want to compare uh, to Scotland or, or, say, Ireland or the northern part of Japan, or not to go so far, just about Canada, whiskies do not mature this fast in those countries. So um, uh, you could be upstate New York and have a bourbon that will age fast, but that's really only if you if you use small bales or if you climate control your warehouse or your rakehouse. Uh, down over in Kentucky, those huge rakehouses will be exposed to those temperature variations. And remember, some are in the plains, some are right by the river, and they've got more humidity than the ones that are on top of the hill, um, which also show a lot more sunlight. And there is a, 
a difference, of course, between a warehouse made of bricks and cement and, and one made of wood and, uh, and another that is just wood plus metal sheets uh, for roof and, and walls. So you'll have a breathing whiskey within and Kentucky and, but you know, we can throw Tennessee right there and we can throw Texas and, and Colorado as well. Those are states where you can find great temperature variations. It is ideal if you want to extract a lot of the wood compounds and it's ideal if you can market your whiskey just a bit sooner. And there is a great benefit of long aging with less temperature variations. Um, as we know that a 25-year-old single malt Scotch whiskey usually shows a great deal of complexity. But in Kentucky, really, uh, most people are happy with the younger whiskeys, and for a good reason. You can get to a much too high extraction of the wood compound uh, that damage the whiskey. So older is not always better, that's, that's for sure. But yes, um, is it the truth? Yeah, but you say that, but at the same time, we see... Uh, and now the trend, I mean, we see a lot of whiskey. I mean, of course, there's a, you know, Papi Winkle, but there's rhetoric and, uh, you know, there's uh, some Elijah Craig or Evan Williams that are like 23, you know, years old. So you said not, you know, older is not better. But so what do you think about those ones? Well, uh, they happen to be really good, but, you know, uh, <laughs> it's a little difficult to judge, honestly. Very simple. Because, yes, you're getting a depth, uh, a richness, a complexity with, say, those, uh, those Papi, uh, Van Winkle, 20 year old, or the, the Evan Williams, 23, um, or the Elijah Craig, um, 18, 21, 23. But most people actually don't really like them. And in blind tastings, they'll, they'll tell you it's just too much. It's too woody. You feel like it's just an extraction of, of wood compounds. So, when you know you're drinking something this old, you know, you switch your brain into more of a contemplative mode and therefore you pay more attention and, and your, your brain is trying to decipher all these aromas and flavors and you're naturally inclined to appreciate it more, to like it more, right? In a, in a blind tasting, I know that quite a few people are surprised by, for example, the first whiffs of a very old bourbon that will be showing some nail polish remover uh, notes. And we know by experience that this is the sign of maybe greatness that, that lies within and we've got to pay more attention and it needs to be exposed to air a little bit and it will change. And yes, indeed, it, it changes and it's super rich. But there is a reality, the business reality of this is that it's only out there to satisfy the geeks and the collectors and to keep the name bourbon being pronounced so loud and clear that the whole category benefits from this. But the very true reality of this is that very few bourbons can reach that age. As a matter of fact, past 15 years, chances are you don't have much left in your barrel if that barrel was on top floors of the Rick House in Kentucky, right? right? I remember a few years ago when we went and, you know, those were the the, the good days. We went to pick an Elijah Craig 18-year-old private bell for Brandy Library, and uh, we tasted out of uh, six bells, and those bells had been taken down already three or four years before from the very top floor into middle floor of the rake house, and they were just absolutely stunning 
by the time it was bottled, it was uh, a 20 year old bourbon that we had picked and absolutely stunning for sure. But then, you know, when you talk, when you talk about this with the guys who let you taste and explain how it works, they tell you it, it's just one out of maybe 50 barrels that get to still have about half in it. And we had somewhere between a third to half of the barrel left after that. 20 years of maturation. Now That's a lot for the angels. That's a lot <laughs> for those angels. They're, they're really thirsty yeah. angels. But we were just <laughs> very lucky that the, the barrel itself had been almost by mistake very well made. And uh, I'll, I'll explain in a second. American oak is traditionally not split like uh, European oak species uh, here in the U.S. And it's, it's, a, it's a big industry. Um, what I'm trying to say here is that a, a typical uh, large-scale Cooperage in the U.S. will make between 1,500 to 2,500 barrels a day. The trees are not seasoned for between two to four years like in Europe. Uh, the planks are just still dried, and uh, whether it lasts a month or, or three, it's just to get the moisture out of the future staves, out of those planks they make from, from the tree, right? Then it's made into barrels pretty quickly, of course, before being released out to the producer. It will be tested with a bit of water and uh, they put pressure in the bale so that they see uh, water coming out of the pores of the wood if there is a leak, right? And they fix it right there. But it's a, it's a quick fix and they don't always see the leak. So it's been a um, traditional job of being a, a barrel fixer. You know, those guys who go to the race. So at the distilleries? Or at the distilleries with, within okay. the aging compounds of those distilleries. It's a job that actually is disappearing because cooperages have learned to pay more attention and there's a, a bit more of a scientific way to make a barrel right now. And therefore, faulty staves are discarded before they enter the making of one barrel. Nonetheless, it hasn't been always like this. And the old timers do lament the fact that maybe the old way of making bourbon in those barrels that were leaking, we're producing better bourbon. But, you know, we always tend to, to think much higher of things of the past. I'm not sure if this is true or not. I've tasted uh, a lot of bourbons that were very old. And yes, they were really good. Was it just my brain uh, playing tricks on? <laughs> I find uh -huh. the bourbons made today absolutely outstanding. There is a natural phenomenon occurring, right? So, of course, you lose a lot with evaporation because it's a porous material. And it breathes because of the temperature variations, levels of humidity, and also atmospheric pressure. But there is that problem of the leaks, um, and there is the wood who, that tries to seal itself. And there's a production of sap, and just like your body after a scratch is healing as quick as possible, well, the wood does the same. And, you know, it's a living thing. It's not just because it's breathing, but those wood compounds are right there and, and they're, they're trying to heal itself. The bell is trying to heal itself. So when you go in and you see a bell that was leaking and it, you see this almost resinous oozing liquid and you finger on it and it's, and it's kind of sweet and it's also a little bitter. That was just the bell trying to fight that leak. And sure, uh, but that, that's, taste uh, somehow impact as well the liquid liquid I, side right you know uh, they will all tell you that it doesn't but oh, really? pretty, i'm pretty sure it does i am pretty sure it does um, for the very simple reason that 
a barrel filled the same day as another with the same white dog and placed on the very same floor, same location of the rickhouse. Um, one shows a few leaks and another has none and the, the whiskey inside will taste different. Now, of course, purists will tell you that it might also depend on where the staves were taken from. Was it from the same tree? Where the tree grown? Did the tree get exposed to uh, a fast, a few fast spring growing seasons? Or on the contrary, did it come from the north facing slope of, of Missouri, the Ozarks in, in Missouri? There is an origin of the barrel that, that we will be discovering. And I'm saying will because so far Buffalo Trace is the one that's been leading the research into the wood and trying to understand where are all these flavors coming from, right? But uh, that's, I mean, that's amazing when you're talking about this and, you know, with all those variations that can impact, you know, the wood itself that goes into the barrel. So, but when, when we look at uh, a higher level and all the different phases of making a bourbon, what do you think has the most impact on the final taste of the liquid? Is it like the mash bill? Is it the yeast that uh, those companies are using? Is it the aging in the barrels that we are talking about, like the barrel itself? And then now even we can talk about like the different finishes that, you know, from different, you know, cask that we, that's becoming very popular. So when you look at all of this, I mean, all of them contributes, but there's one that has more impact than the, than the other. You're right. There, there are so many elements that, that do contribute to the final overall flavor profile of, of a bourbon, right? But no matter what, you know, we, we are, either pleased or put off right away when we put a bourbon in our, in our mouth by its sweetness and its richness combined with its uh, spiciness or, 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 or smokiness, right? Yes, bourbon is sweet. That's because there's a lot of sugar extractions. Remember that oak sugars, uh, those different those different sugars that are in the oak right there will be extracted during maturation. The fact that this is a brand new charred oak barrel means that there will be an almost overwhelming extraction of the wood compounds. So no matter what, this is the number one. Right? You'll you'll get you'll get the, the vanilla and the coconut and the sugars. So the impact of the season with the winter and the summer and uh, you know, the bar, like the woods, you know, expanding and contracting, all of this is going to, for you, contribute the most, you know, on the, um, on the final taste. Absolutely. absolutely. And it's really interesting to know that a few craft distillers are paying attention to the very origin of, of the tree. Now, you know, we, we always say that American oak is a lot easier to deal with than European oak species. And when I say American oak, I, I, I mean, we've got to be careful with the term of white oak, right? Because all of these oak species, even the ones over in, uh, say, in Gascony that we call black oak, it, it's really all part of the white oak species. And all of these white oak species that are used here in the U.S., and 45% of that is Quercus alba, which does translate, if, if you remember your, your, uh, your Latin uh, into white oak, but Quercus alba is only one of them. It represents almost half of and the inventory of white oak that we're using in the U.S., and not just for bales, right? For bales as well. Um, but you have Quercus lirata and Quercus durandii and, and Quercus macrocarpa and so on. But even if we stick to that Quercus alba, um, whether it is grown in 
the forest of Virginia or in the Ozarks and where in the Ozarks. And it's not just that. It's not just the, the, the growing, the seasonal changes at stake in those forests. It's the fact that maybe the tree had to fight a louse or, or another. We say that there are less tannins than in European oak species. However, you still have tannins and those tannins may have been produced in greater amounts in that tree by that tree because it had to fight some insects. Let's remember that tannins are just a um, natural defense mechanism that kingdom of plants and vegetables, you know, think of fruits and many trees do develop to an extreme or not, depending on what it is exposed to. If it does need to fight, it, it will produce more. Now, at the end of the day, uh, the tannins that are in the oak will be extracted by the whiskey during maturation if you get too long of a maturation. And that's why those whiskey bales that stay up there uh, on the top floors of the rickhouse will be exposed to the dangers of not only uh, the super thirsty angels and, and the leaking, the just the physical leaking out of the bales because of the pressure. It goes from... Uh, 40 degrees Fahrenheit to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, a 50-gallon or, say, a 55-gallon capacity barrel uh, over in Kentucky will see it, say, 48 or 50 gallons present inside the barrel grow over two gallons in volume, right? So you, you've got a, a tremendous expansion and retraction, therefore, when the temperatures go down going on during, during aging. But it also means that if you do leave that happy in the barrel for 23 years, maybe it will go to a level of over-extraction of the wood compounds, and some of those wood compounds will be the tannins. And those will be giving you some astringency, some bitterness even. It wouldn't take that long for, uh, say, a French oak barrel to give these notes to, to the bourbon. But an American oak takes that long because it's got just about 9 to 10 times less tannins than European oak species. But nonetheless, it does happen. So there is a there's a danger there. And some people say, well, I don't understand why bourbon is, is so smoky. Well, you do extract some smoky notes as well, um, just like you would extract tannins. Now, you may find a, a bourbon that has become extremely fruity and, and just super delightful, but maybe this is because your palate can also take the tannins. Maybe because you've been exposing your, your palate to the fancy tannins of uh, so many red wines, and you're used to it. But for taste buds that are, not, that are not used to tannins, to its astringency and, and um, giving you that factory effect, well, or just about any young person, as a matter of fact, and not used to appreciate this, and it could be a bit uh, frightening. What does bodily in, bottle in bond means? Th this bottle in bond is really cool, as a matter of fact. When you see that on the, the label of a craft distiller, it's a, it's a real sign of achievement, as a matter of fact, because it means that the, um, those, those small producers have got that very difficult decision to make, whether they're going to be using very small barrels for three months or they're going to be keeping their whiskey for so long four years, it's a long time for a small producer, and uh, just because they want to get to that level of quality, it's a seal of quality. Uh, really, that's that's all it is. But I'm, I'm very happy to see this back on the market. You know, there are some big producers 
who never really stopped making a bald in Bond, um, just because they thought it was a cool nod to the past. And and I'm very happy to see those new small producers who um, embracing this old technique. It it says I've taken my time, I've cared for this whiskey in the barrel. I've watched over its um, maturation, and it was not just aging, it was maturation, and now it's ready. Now it got to the adult age, right? Four years is sort of adult age. Young adult, but adult age for whiskey. So you find rice, you find bourbons. What it gives you is that 100 proof. It means, you know, you're getting the real deal. It has not been cut with so much water, right, At, from the aging Conditions it could have been that the whiskey at the at the turn of those four years was 130 proof was maybe 115 could have been could have been higher but given the fact that by law you cannot barrel the whiskey you know the onset of maturation over 125 proof if you find yourself at 145 proof well that's because it's been a few years right on essentially the top floors of the rickhouse. But say if you barrel that 125 proof, that legal maximum, four years later, and especially if you've kept uh, this whiskey on the uh, on the bottom floors of the house, maybe it's going to be at um, 120, 115, and and therefore you only dilute it to 100 if you want to raise it at 100 proof, right? But okay, before bottling, before bottling, thank you, yeah. Increasingly, um, this this reduction is not taking place, or is not taking place in in huge amounts. Uh, back in the old days, it it seems that a common practice for barreling the whiskey was more around 110, 115, and it sort of naturally go down to a hundred, so that there would be very little manipulation. And when I say manipulation, I mean reduction with water before bottling. So it's it's really also some sort of a bourbon as as natural as it as it gets, right? So of course, if you're a novice, if you're not used to that packed with flavor whiskey, and especially that bald in bond that gives you a hundred proof, well, it could be a bit of a surprise, if not a shock to your taste buds. At the end of the day, if you're going to assert, you appreciate this because it's packed with more flavors. But uh, so it's interesting here. You're talking about the the, the proof level and. Uh, and then this idea that you're, you know, adding water before bottling, which is probably easier as well for the people drinking it. And, um, you know, it's probably, you know, for, for the, the, the flavor experience when you taste the, the product. So is it like the same principle, in fact, when for some of the bourbon, you know, that um, we find with a higher proof than to really appreciate it, you know, people are either adding maybe an ice cube, like a big ice cubes or like drops, sorry, of water. <laughs> you know, in order to open and to reduce first the, the level of alcohol a little bit and then to drop it a little bit and then to uh, to make sure that you can really appreciate the liquid even more. It's, it's a bit of a delicate point here because um, I, I might have a, a strong opinion on this. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I, um, I do believe that we have to bring them, I do believe that we have to bring ourselves to the point of being able to decipher, gauge, analyze if needed, uh, but certainly appreciate the whiskey the way it is released. There is a reason why those distillers do it. It is the very purest expression of their craft. 
maybe it is uh, the more direct link between the soil and you know i'm going to uh, an extreme here between the soil where that corn or rye or, or barley was grown or wheat and the forest where the trees were taken to make barrels with to your very taste buds it's just the product as it was at the end of maturation and and the warehouse manager will think well you know what for the flavor profile of this particular mark particular brand within the line of my offerings this is really this is the way i want it sure at its best and clearly marketing is right there behind saying well you know i mean you don't want to go that far and then should we really be that much of a, of a, of a purist here and and you find the people who do sell the whiskey and even even master blenders and people in charge of warehousing and selecting the bales that will tell you well you know we, we give it to you at um at its most natural proof cask strength or barrel proof as they call it because we want you to be your own master and add the water you want because it's a very personal thing and granted it is a personal thing but your recommendation is drinking neat no matter what try first exactly because it's you know your friend that you're having it with will have will have it at its best uh, with three drops of water you'll need to put just about a 50% water in it it's very different we are all so all different in terms of um, nose and palate preferences we all have we all have a, a, a different childhood if you grew up in in parts of germany or in parts of france or italy you will be you will have been more exposed to to the bitter to the astringent to from licorice to uh, you know aniseed and 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 very tart maybe acidic foods certainly not as sweet as um, most parts of the us for example so it's all it's all about what your your childhood was about what you were exposed when when you were younger and also very simply what your last say 2 3 5 10 years of eating and drinking have been about if you found yourself in the liking of of fancy red wine naturally you're looking for the drier style and you don't mind the tannins and you appreciate the structure that the tannins will give to the red wine it's the same thing for spirits so it's uh there's a big danger here in in saying well you know you really want to have it at fast strength because it's the pure stuff and just add water because it will open it up it it will not always open it up it will show you maybe right off the bat pleasant notes but in 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 the meantime it will also mask a lot of complexity and should you actually take the time should you be in contemplation so to speak rather than in a rush to drink it then you'll see that the whiskey will expose itself to you just give it an hour for yourself a good two ounces and in uh, in a big glass or or a tulip glass whichever fancy you want it to be and be in the discovery mode this is where this is when your brain is is going to work if you want an immediate satisfaction then you should not even bother with the super high strength and add a lot of water because chances are you will be annihilating you will be killing so much of that whiskey again water can open it up it can also shut it off completely and it's very difficult to to just overcome this overwhelming amount of 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 what and as some will tell you that you can just add uh, straight from the bottle you can add to it right 
Um, <laughs> but you know, some people actually put water in in the, in the glass and then pour the whiskey. And taking time, then you just pour you pour more whiskey and and and, and you see and you see how it what it does on your on your palate. You know, ice. Uh, you know, you know what I feel about ice. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's I a know. Killer, but it's it's also it's also needed. Uh, we you know we don't have to be intellectuals when, or at least not all the time uh, when we drink bourbon, <laughs> when we drink any spirit, and um, it, it it should remain a product for enjoyment and relaxation and a good time with friend or or on your own. There's no shame to this. Only sometimes we have drinks uh, with a societal pressure. We're within groups, whether colleagues or, or friends. And, um, well, just dropping an ice cube on many bourbons doesn't hurt the bourbon because that bourbon it, it maybe is not that complex. And it was made so that it can take the ice, right? And ice drop of temperature and also means uh, reduction, you know, watering it down a bit. But there's no problem. If you're going to drink it in, in 10 minutes, uh, why not? And especially if it's a small amount. There's no problem with it. it. It's just you cannot apply those rules to to all bourbons. You you've got to you've got to think twice. So I would like to come back to aging and this situation of uh, you know the the techniques of like the the the, the barrel moving the barrel in the rickhouse, and then there is you know other another technique that. We have heard about, and it, it's you know even some you know some distillers are putting this on on their you know bottle. It's the the Solera technique. So, can you talk to us a little bit, like the difference between the two? Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, here's here's what's happening with the moving of of the bales. You, you you're just provoking a bit more of a, a rolling and rocking of the whiskey within the bale, and and so you're forcing. The, uh, the whiskey deeper into the pores of the wood. So naturally, the maturation will, will, will be faster. This is not always why barrels are moved around, right? And full disclosure, very few barrels aging bourbon will be moved around during aging time, during maturation. Very few. A couple of commercial ones will, will be very proud to tell you so. And what they tell you is that they, they want all conditions to be presiding over the maturation of the bourbon. In other words, when they'll be bottling that bourbon, they, they, they will want that bourbon to be uh, to have been exposed to the um, high humidity and, and the lower temperature and also the very drastic temperature swings, the high and the lows of temperatures, and, and, and so on. Okay, this is extremely difficult to do because it costs money. And bourbon is traditionally not a product that has been pricey, right? So um, the idea there is, is that they wouldn't have to do too much of a, of a blending. And you, you, we know that Maker's Mark does that. We know Woodford Reserve does that a bit. A few craft distillers will do this. It's extremely time consuming. It's energy. It's money. And I don't want to say that this is wasted, but traditionally, the way consistency has been achieved is not this way. Uh, consistency is just blending the contents of uh, a thousand bales or, or just a dozen bales that were taken out of different warehouses, different rick houses, different floors, different locations within each floor. Corner bales exposed to sunlight and to airflow 
all the ones right there in the middle, those, those honey barrels uh, on the middle floors, the ones on the very top that are suffering those great temperature swings. And this is the right way to achieve consistency. And then let's, let's face it, you know, we're in 2019, approaching 2020, science has come to the rescue of bourbon making. There is an analysis of, of that vetting of so many barrels in that, in that big tank that will tell you, okay, yeah, you do have the flavor profile of the mark uh, you usually put on the market, or you don't. And if you're missing some caramel notes and some coconut notes, well, you know that these barrels over there for the coconut will be giving you more uh, of the lactones during extraction than those other barrels. So you go and fetch a few barrels in that particular wake house that will give you that flavor profile, and then you achieve that consistency. So the moving of the of the barrels, it makes sense, all right. But there is on top of the cost, the labor cost, the time, the energy, the fuel, and and all that that is needed to do so. There is also a much greater angel share going on because you you shake the the barrel around when you move it, right? And which means you're wetting the that headspace, that top part of the barrel when it, it was resting right there that had become somewhat dry. Well, then again, you're wetting it. This is going to evaporate so quickly. So you're losing a lot more when you do this. Now, of course, you can turn it into um, a marketing advantage and, and say, well, yeah, of course, we don't age our whiskey for that long, but there's so much care, so much intervention, and so much of an angel's share that it, it should be sold at a higher price. So let's talk about the Solera. Oh, the Solera. So Solera is something quite new in the U.S., right? It's a very old technique uh, that we can trace back, uh, not just in Spain, but other parts of, of Europe. And you could also find some sort of Solera systems in most wine countries, countries with uh, a very old tradition uh, of making wine. It's very simply put, you're mixing the young stuff with the old stuff for speeding of maturation. So when it comes to whiskey, the craft movement has learned to to differentiate itself from the big guys. The big guys wouldn't bother with Solera systems, but the small ones could be putting, say, um, 20, 30, 40 barrels together and with a careful extraction of the whiskey from the bottom barrels and uh, uh, compensation from the upper layers of bales with the white dog or the younger stuff, it could be interesting. It's all about the mingling of the molecules, the ones that were just created with that spirit, with the ones that have been within the wood already for a while. Uh, the Spanish solar system is, is, is what uh, in the U.S. We, we got inspired by. This is very simply, you know, that, that typical three layers of barrel system whereby when you're ready to bottle that uh, vino de Jerez, that, that sherry wine, you're taking out of the bottom barrels and you make up for that loss with extracting, with extracting some sherry from the layer of barrels right above. And, and having done so, you have to do the very same thing from the top layer barrels. And it has been proven that this is a uh, faster way of aging. Do you see more of this uh, being done? I see more of this. Say, 10 years ago, nobody was doing it. 
late friend and and uh, craft movement brain, Dave Pickrell is the one who sort of not brought the technique over, but revived this old technique over in in the U.S. and he applied it directly in uh, Hill Rock, uh, at state uh, state New York by Ingram, and and it does work. It does work, and he's proved that it, it can it can be done, and it's very interesting. It is very interesting. But let's remember one thing: if it says if it says bourbon, no matter what, it has to be a brand new bale, right? So where another, you've got the law on your side because the law only calls for a substantial amount of time, right? If you're not in Kentucky and then that's calling for one year minimum of aging, if you just want to say bourbon, you don't care about straight. Well, it could just be for a few months, could be for a few weeks. It could even be for a few days if you really want to stretch it. And you can <laughs> call it bourbon. And then you can do what you what you want with this bourbon. You, and you can transfer it, whether it's a Solera system or it's another sort of system. You can transfer it into a barrel that was not made of American oak. Let's not, let's not forget that the regulations do not call for American oak. It calls for brand new charred oak barrel. It could be Hungarian oak. It could be um, Mongolian oak, uh, or that uh, Japanese oak, you know. But it doesn't make. It never really made sense in the tradition of making whiskey in the U.S. It would never make sense to use other oak species. As a matter of fact, American oak is quite easy to use. It grows fast. It grows a lot faster than European oak species because of its lack, almost lack of tannins. You don't have to split, follow the veins of the wood. You can just quarter saw it and, and, and that's it, right? And therefore, even if you go back a hundred years ago, American oak was already shipped over to Spain and Portugal and Italy in order to contain wines over there. So American oak is beautiful, right? American oak with all this beauty. And nonetheless, maybe is not satisfying enough, very simply because, well, we have demanding palettes nowadays, and you need to show your products differently from your competitors. And they are looking at innovations and how they are going to innovate. And that leads me to the, the you know, the, the, the topic of, uh, you know, the, the different barrel and especially like the, the finish, you know, the cask finish, that's, this is the the big things that we are seeing at the moment. Right. So what do you think about that? I think innovation, no matter what, is absolutely needed to keep this business going. It's, it's that simple. A category of product can only guarantee itself future if it knows how to move with the world. You can't really be stuck in the old days. You have to remain true to your history. You have to remain true to your identity and what your customers know of you, certainly. But, um, you know, whether you're looking at Louis Vuitton or, um, or, or simple cheesemakers, they do follow the trends and they may have 300 years of tradition. They may still be sourcing the very best ingredients from here or there, but they have to innovate. They have to innovate to keep it interesting for themselves. They have to innovate so that they can guarantee that they'll They'll be the ones uh, taking the space on that shelf in the liquor store or, or, or behind the bar in a restaurant bar, right? But also because they need to, to keep that consumer happy. And the consumer is not fixed in his or her own way. A consumer will change. 
you know, you were you were really hooked on Jack Daniels when uh, when you were 21, and God knows you've evolved. I'm not saying Jack Daniels is is a is a product for the younger kind, but all I'm saying is that it's beautifully made in its simplicity. As you grow older, your palate changes. Uh, you're looking for stronger flavors, for enjoying more of the acidity and and the bitterness and the savory over the sweet and the simple. It's it's just how we are. And and then at some point in your life, as you grow older, you may even go back to the sweet and easy. Guess what? Because You've lost already some sense of smell and taste. That's the reality of, of human beings aging with time. You, you do not exactly smell nor taste as good as you did when you're 75, such as you were when, uh, when, when you were 25. It's, it's, it's that simple. So we do change. Our palates change. And the brands have to change themselves. There's a lot to say about the amazing integrity that all of those big brands, all of those bourbon makers have. They want to stick to what they're known for. They have that consistency. But can we blame them for coming up with a brand extension? Purists will say, oh, well, you know, they're just trying to catch this segment of the market or they're just trying to follow the trend. They're riding the wave of, of this and that. Finishing is just one of the techniques um, that can be used. Some producers don't go for it. Others have been dabbling with it a little bit and some have embraced it. You know, there's something that, that, that is very easy. The law calls for that finishing to be said on the label. You need to stipulate on your bottle that it is finished, right? You can't just put a Kentucky straight bourbon and, and this is it. And then you taste it and, and it's, it's very strange. It's very different. And uh, you feel like something was added to it. Well, first of all, to call it bourbon, nothing can add it to it. You cannot flavor your bourbon, right? You, you can make a cucumber vodka and you'll be proud to put cucumber on the label. But you, if, if your bourbon is so caramelly and praline, like, well, that's just because of what happened during maturation. It's because of all these things that have been extracted during maturation. It's because of all those climate conditions and, and, and all that, right? So it's a very natural product that you cannot tamper with. And it's a beautiful thing that you can sort of play with the bourbon by transferring it after an otherwise traditional maturation in a brand new chard or pale into different casts. Now, can, can you source tradition? Can you source a sherry finish in the history of bourbon making? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to prove. But the reality is that a lot of wine barrels were coming from Spain at some point. And like all barrels that had been containing so many other goods, they would have been reused until they fell apart and until they would be remade into smaller bales, maybe, or arranged with other staves from other bales and made into a bale, uh, becoming some sort of Frankenstein bales. But that's, that's, that was the life of a bale. To an extent, it's still the life of a bale. Not in the US to call it bourbon, but in the rest of the world it is. So let's talk about uh, still. I have uh, one question on uh, on the on bourbon. Focus on bourbon and uh, which is like the pairing with with food. So I have one listener for the podcast. His name is Dylan, and he is asking the question. So how do you suggest to pair bourbon with food? Because since it's uh, like you know strong flavors, you know, so uh, so what works well? Well, uh, yeah, it's strong, strong flavors. You're right. So. You know, I remember a few years ago uh, talking about bourbon and, and, 
and playing with bourbon and food over in France. And then, yeah, I've always been a bit different. Okay, I get it. But it, it was, <laughs> I, I was a bit of a, of a heretic, you know, to them. And until, until bourbon was consumed in greater amounts, and France is actually a, 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 quite a big country for bourbon consumption. And it's so easy to pair bourbon with food, not just, not all food, right? You, for me, it is best when there is either already a great deal of sweetness or a great deal of fat. Now, for some reason, I'm one of very few people who love to pair a bourbon, if not task strength, at least a higher strength, 96 or above, 96 proof of above or above, with a Ramon Iberico de Bellota. Because there is so much depth, richness, um, with Ramon Iberico de Bellota, uh, that, that I think is the perfect complement. You know, none, none of those, the bourbon nor this, this specially cured ham, uh, from pigs who were only raised on that, on, on a beautiful diet of acorns, uh, will, will be doing negative to the other. It's just, the bourbon complements the harmony Iberico de Bellota and, and, and vice versa. It's just, you gotta take your time, right? You can't just go back to back one with the other. It's a lot easier if you're in a rush and we all, we're all in a rush because, you know, this is, this is how modern society is commanding us to work and live. And, but you, you can go straight at chocolate and enjoy a great variety of chocolate, uh, from milk chocolate to very dark chocolate to the, to the bitter chocolate. And with a variety of bourbons, you know, some bourbons are drier than others. Uh, some are sweeter than others. Some are, have more vanilla in them than, than others. You'll find spicy bourbons. Is it because of the rye or because it was aged for a lot longer? I'm not sure whichever that is. There is no matter what a chocolate that will be ideal for it. You can just go as simple as a, a praline chocolate candy and a maker's mark. Right. I mean, Baker's Mark remains a very good, soft, round, easy whiskey. And I'm not saying this in, in any uh, negative way at all. This is the ideal everyday bourbon, I do believe. And when you're not about to sit down and have a chocolate conversation for three hours with your, with your uh, geeky friends about the very origins of this uh, chocolate, then from, you know, the cocoa pods uh, that, 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 that were harvested in, uh, in Nicaragua or over uh, that particular mountain, you just into the enjoyment of it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with with milk chocolate, praline, bonbon. You know that's just purely beautiful. And uh, but you're not talking about the spicy food because I, I do really enjoy tasting or having a, bur a glass of bourbon with you know like food that is that has a kick and um, you know maybe like Asian you know food. It could be Korean you know, food and, and so on. I think it, it goes very well with it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. But you see, in, in, uh, in a lot of Asian food, especially when it gets a bit, a, a bit spicy, but even without being spicy, there is a, a mastering of fat in, in their dishes that, it, that is just the right complement. And I mean, those barbecue sauces uh, of theirs and, and their soy-based marinades, I mean... Just there is so much depth in there that you find the depth in, in, in the bourbon as well or in the rye whiskey. So 
I like a, a cask strength or, or barrel proof when I'm going that way. So you can definitely go savory there. God knows bacon is just bourbon's best friend, right? But if, if you do that Korean barbecue, absolutely. I mean, just marinate your, your already cooked pork belly in some sort of a, of a soy sauce. Throw a little bit of rye whiskey in there, not for too long because then it's going to be too whiskey-like. And then just sear it very quickly in a cast iron pan and it's heavenly with, with a cast strength bourbon. So absolutely perfect. That's for, for the, for the savory side. I, I like when we're playing with coriander and different kinds of, of pepper. And I like when I find Indian notes, for example, you know, Indian cooking has a lot of very interesting spices. And from, from that coriander to clove and, and to pepper and, and, and spices that has, that have more flavor than, than kick. It's just, it, it really, really, really works. But again, what you will do with bourbon or you do with rye with that? Well, I do with both. But when I do it with bourbon, I definitely want a higher strength or okay. I want to make sure it's worth So what do you mean higher is, strength? That will be mean what? Like 100 and, and like more? 92, 96, 100, okay. Yeah, okay. 110. And remember that a few very high proof bourbons and rye whiskeys will be at high proof, but you won't really feel it. And I'm not saying that because maybe, well, you've seasoned your palate, but very simply because it is so well matured that the strength is part of the beauty. In, instead of playing against your taste buds, it accompanies the, the richness of, of the whiskey. It carries the complexity of the whiskey. I'm thinking of this uh, Pikesville rye, for example, 110 proof. That's a six-year-old rye at 110 proof that, that really doesn't need any water, no ice or anything. I'm, just, I'm not going to pillory you if... Uh, if you're uh, putting one of the uh, of those in it, but it uh, certainly doesn't need it. And no, I, no, I, I drink my, as you know, I drink my bourbon or right neat. But um, you know, I've seen you know a lot of people. You know, um, that's why I was asking the question before. <laughs> I just want to ask you: Do you think that you have the largest selection of whiskey in uh, in New York City? I in New York City, definitely. Yes. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and for, and for bourbon in particular, I want to say that our sister location is even, is even topping us. Uh, Copper and Oak in the Lower East Side is top. Yeah, yeah. Brandy okay. selection. But we, we always, you know, we always try to buy some bourbons as well at auctions. New York State licensed auctioneers, whenever they, they have those auctions, we, uh, we try to bid. We don't always win, but, We've got a few gems here and there, and, and uh, we don't always put them on the menu right away. We like to, to hold them a little bit, just take them out of the reserve and put them on the shelf and in the menu at the right time. Uh, you have to keep uh, checking us out. Question on about like the new generation. You know, it says, and you can read everywhere that, you know, millennials and Gen Z are drinking, you know, less for a variety of reasons. And, uh, you know, we heard as well that poses like, um, you know, major challenges for the spirit industry in the long term. What, what do you think about this? I, do you well, see that like the young generation, you know, coming less <laughs> at uh, the Brandy Library or, you know, the other place you have? On the contrary, you know, what they, what they don't do as much as they would do in the past is, is coming to the same place over and over and having the same drink over and over just because it satisfies that part of the brain that likes uh, consistency and 
surety, you know, a sense of safety in their habits, right? And I don't want to say this is a thing of the past, but certainly uh, the younger generation realizes that life is way too short to keep yourself in that box. So they do go to many more places than one. They like many more places than one. And they also like all sorts of, of whiskeys. And this is why the, brand, the, the bourbon producers have to be uh, thanked a lot for because they, they've been accompanying this trend and they've been, they've been selecting barrels that show different flavor profiles and, and bottling those different bourbons so that the younger generation can be satisfied with their curiosity. It's very important to satisfy your curiosity. You know, I do believe that variety is choice, I guess, is a spice of, of life. I think it is needed, and unlike other categories, other spirits producers, the bourbon people have definitely seen it coming, and they've reacted quickly enough. And the beauty of it is that they could expand, most of them could expand on their production, and because it doesn't take that long to age a proper bourbon, that they could adjust pretty quickly to the needs of, of the market. But I don't see this changing population drinking population as a, a challenge for us. On the contrary, you know, we're, we are out there to show the beautiful variety of uh, spirits and bourbons and rice. So for, for us, it works. It really works. We want people to try. And uh, look, we, we, we're, we're now up to 40, I believe 48 different tasting flights in our menu. So, and it takes time, believe me. A tasting flight is, is not something that you just come out within two seconds you know it's i was in the box it's six glasses in the box it's six bottles to open and to carefully pour in the box and and uh, there's a paper underneath and there's another paper above and every time we change one of them we have to we have to uh, change the tasting notes and you know it's a change in the pos and it's a it's a new print of the menu yeah. it's, it's a lot of work, absolutely but, but that's that but that's true that you have added a lot i mean compared to several years back you right, know right, right, yeah. uh, coming to the brandy library where there was you know um, they were still you know a series of flights but now it's 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 a lot and so that's your way uh, of reacting and proposing something for the new generation yeah and and we are now and we are now working and we constantly change those those flights sort of because well we want people to be um uh, experiencing what's new as well yeah, sure and come back and, sure exactly and we always invite the producers over, you know, every week we've got at least one, uh, if not two public tastings, whether at Brand Avenue or Copper and Oak, where producers, the, the master blenders or the owners of the distilleries, the distillery managers will come and, and sample their, their spirits. And, and you're in front of the person who makes it and who can explain everything to you. So we want the product to be the only third party there between the consumer and the producer. And, okay. uh, and you find those uh, program on your website you've got to have your email address we send we send okay, emails sure. we, and we you know we go by social media as well uh, uh, with so subscribe to your newsletter that's the solution <laughs> absolutely that's what it is yes so uh, can you tell me what's the spirit network and can you talk a little bit about your involvement with it Spirits Network is, is uh, um, I was about to say a little bit of a revolution, but it's, it's a lot more than that. It's, it is the revolution, and uh, it's going to take a few weeks, maybe, maybe, for people to realize, but we tweaked Take on Food Network 
to be applied to spirits. And we added a, an instant shop ability to it. So you, you've got the ability to purchase your fine spirits right there on your phone, your any smartphone or on your smart TV or uh, on your desktop. It's, it's spiritsnetwork.com as well. And you, um, because you're watching shows, it's, it's a, a huge amount of programming pieces. Whether we have filmed them ourselves or we've acquired the content, trusted sources, things that we've tweaked and, and helped in the making will tell you how gin is made and why, and why this bourbon tastes like this and, and another. We, we partnered with amazing people in the industry, whether it's uh, in Kentucky or, or, or here in, uh, in England uh, or in France or Mexico. And when we, we're basically showing the beauty of this world of fine spirits. So we're out to, for you to discover the, the heritage, the culture, and the tastes. So, so it's both like an educational and a shopping channel, correct? Right. And I want to say even more so than, it, than edu- educational. I mean, you know how much I love to, to educate the palates on all things spirited. It's entertaining. It's a lot of entertainment. So you can be watching how to make uh, an old fashioned, but it's going to be a, a funny one and it's going to be quick. Or you can just dive into the making of malt whiskey and it's, it's going to last quite a few minutes. And, and we, we really want your attention. So you, you've got uh, a little bit for all palettes and all eyes, so to speak. Okay. And, and you can shop some uh, specific, uh, let's say, um, launches of or release of um, certain spirits that you will not able to find, you know, on your in your store. Because of our partnerships, we have a special access to the right stuff. And when I say the right stuff, I mean the limited editions, uh, special releases, what just what just arrived on the market, and we'll be offering that to you. Now, it's a paying membership. Right now, right now we've got a promotion going on. I didn't know I would be doing the the promotion of the current discounts, but don't go, go ahead. The, if you don't go for the for the one dollar a month, uh, it is normally a nine ninety nine a month to get the ability to to buy and I mean look, I get my bottles within two hours in New York City. It, it's not absolutely everywhere like this, and, we, and we're looking to to expand and it's going fast. But you can get your fine spirit right away. We can also uh, curate uh, that membership for you, as in you don't have to worry about anything. And once a month, uh, whether you're paying ninety nine, uh, ninety nine a month or one forty nine, ninety nine a month, we will send you that fancy bottle that we know you like because, well, you fill out that flavor profile and you told us what you like. So we're in to do the shopping for you. We curate that experience. So Spirits Network is just so innovative technique to put the producers directly in charge of understanding the consumers and for the consumers to get what they like right away. That will never replace going to a bar or a restaurant and talk about this particular flavor profile of a bourbon with your favorite bartender or, or your spirit sommelier if you come to Brain Library or, 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 or Copper and Oak or other places. But, you know, there is this amazing possibility to learn right there, right on. And while you're having a relaxing time or while you're with your, your friends at work or at home, it just makes a lot of sense. Let's face it, 
a big part of the consumption of fine spirits, just like wines and beers and, and food, is now taking place at home. So we want to bring the producers and the wonderful products to your home. Just like you've got the, those food subscription boxes, you've got these fine spirits boxes. So, Flavien, we have been talking for a long time. You're really um, a passionate guy, and, and you know, uh, obviously, tremendously, I mean, a lot on, uh, you know, about uh, spirits. And uh, it's always a pleasure to, um, you know, to come to the Bourbon Library. But before we um, end the, the session here, I would like to ask you um, a series of rapid-fire questions. When it comes to spirits, what is your spirit of choice? I don't As have Flavien. You don't have one. I don't have I know it's not vodka, though. It's not vodka, yeah. So let's go by the negative. <laughs> it is not vodka. It is not vodka. But if I find myself in the right place in Ukraine or Poland, I will absolutely enjoy a vodka in the right company. And because that vodka will actually have a texture and a taste and something to it. But not here, not in the U.S., where vodka has to be tasteless and odorless and colorless. Okay. See, I did it again. It was uh, rapid fire question. Sorry. No, no, no. That's fine. Have you ever thought of having yourself like a distillery and, and producing, you know, uh, some of the spirits, you know, yourself? Sure. You know, in theory, there's, uh, I believe there's nothing more uh, satisfying than, than seeing a creation grow and, uh, and, and be something that the public likes, clearly. But I know because I've, I've traveled so much and because I've been in this, in this industry for now 24, 25 years uh, in the hospitality industry, I also know that you just don't come up with any product and be proud of it and people to really like it for the long run overnight. It takes uh, years, it takes decades. That's why I, I salute all these craft distillers who have the courage to do so because you know, it, it's it's a hard, it, it's a tough dream to 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 believe in, right? But if you have the courage, if if you're bold with this very true American spirit, you can do it absolutely. But people say it's very difficult to build a bar or a restaurant and to still and to still have it uh, after a few years, right? Brandy Library is going to be celebrating 15 years uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's enough of a challenge on its own, and and Copper and Oak is my other baby, and Look, I've got a, I've got a wife, a son, two bars, <laughs> sure, and, and the spirit network, and the spirit <laughs> network, and and twenty or so amazing employees. Uh, that by the ones, the the one who actually make it happen every day. It's they're the ones who who translate all all this passion. They're all all passionate and wonderful people. So it's I got a lot on my plate, you know. <laughs> okay, is Papi Van Winkle just a marketing story? It's not just a marketing story. It's also beautiful stuff. And there's no effort in marketing, as a matter of fact. This is a product that, that got successful almost on its own or in the hands of, of people who have been buying it and collecting it. And ask Julian Van Winkle what he thinks of it, and he'll tell you that this is really a silly thing going on. But it happens to be an amazing bourbon, too. What was the most interesting class uh, that you have uh, delivered yourself at the Brandy Library? Oh, that's a good question. I, I am not sure. I am not sure. 
you know, it's all it's all about the attendance, right? It's all about the the people you've got in the room. And I always have pleasure, whether whether we're talking about tequila and mezcal or Japanese whiskey or, or bourbon and rye whiskey. I do not know. I can I I I don't remember. I don't remember. So I let's, let's talk you. about like there's one coming about um, the impact and the influence of oak. So can you tell us a little bit what is this one about? Yeah, so we're taking we're taking North American whiskey in a variety of iterations because those are matured in different oak species. And this one is going to be a little technical, but no matter what, it's going to be the occasion to taste new whiskies, different whiskies, some of them that are absolutely impossible to get, others that are very easy to get and, and yet that are gems that people don't realize how amazing they are. Some single bales, some not. But definitely something about the origin. Look, I'm trying to put terroir in the mind of not just consumers, but in the mind of producers as well. So if the consumers pay more attention to the very DNA of the whiskey they're drinking, whether it's bourbon or rye or even scotch whiskey, and it's going to help the producers pay attention to what the market needs are. And then in turn, they will pay more attention to the raw material. And in turn, maybe they'll revive some heirloom varieties of corn, and maybe just those guys over in the, in our in our Empire State of New York pay more attention to the little farmers who are helping the distillers revive some heirloom variety of rye uh, or, or wheat, and go and go non-GMO, and pay more attention to the water and their carbon footprint and. And be careful with their pollution and all this. You know, making whiskey it actually takes a toll on on mother nature. Uh, you're using a lot of water. You have a lot of byproducts. Uh, you you're putting your product in uh, in a glass. You know, there's the the glass making of it. There's a cork. There's a label. That's paper. That there's so much of it. There, there's there's uh, there's the distribution of it. You know, bringing it to your door. You know, how many doors the bourbon bottles have to go through in order to end up in your glass a lot. So there, there's a lot of thinking that producers have to do in order to, uh, one, respect the raw materials, and two, be open about what they do and clearly educate their consumers with very truthful information and showing them how it's done. So what's your favorite classic cocktail? Uh, you know, when the guys want to send me home, they're offering me an old fashioned. And, uh, and I've got to say, it used to be a sidecar when we opened Brandy Library for, for a very brandy purpose. And, you know, it was all about whiskey to begin with, but I always wanted to show brandies as, as, as often as I could, right? So sidecar was our number one cocktail and it got pushed to the side by the old fashioned. Okay. About to say five Traditional years. old fashioned with a twist. Well, you know, we're pretty classic when it comes to cocktail, although classic has different takes here, but we're using Rittenhouse rye. We're using rye in our old fashioned. And uh, maybe our little twist is the fact that we're buying fresh cherries, uh, just about 200 pounds a year, and we soak them in, in barrels with an orange syrup in small quantity and uh, a lot of bourbon and that's the cherry that you're going to get with your slice of orange and, uh, and a long ribbon in, in that in that big glass it's just beauty the, the, the old-fashioned is such a, a simple pleasure 
yes, this is what I crave at the end of a long day. The simplicity of an old fashioned. Thank you very much uh, again, Flavia. It was great Is to it? spend some time with you. And I'm uh, looking forward to my next visit to the, the Brandy Library. And hopefully you'll, you'll be around. <laughs> uh, hopefully I'll find you at the Oak, Oak Exploration Pass. Yeah, <laughs> you might. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Emmanuel. Thanks again. If you liked this episode with Flavien Desoblin from the Brandy Library and Cooper and Oak in Manhattan, please share it with friends as I always welcome new listeners to the show. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive the information about future new episodes. In two weeks, my guest will be Chef Gabrielle Kreuther from the two Michelin star restaurant on Bryan Park in Manhattan. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.